Yeah, because our fandom runs that deep. It's some some real Velvet Underground LARPing that has gone on through the years between the two of us. Doesn't uh, doesn't end well for John Cale in that song. Though. <laughs> I love that record so much, but that song scared the bejesus out of me. In high school, you know, when you, well, I, that's when I was lucky enough to hear, first hear Velvet Underground. And, um, you know, some of it you're like, what? This just sounds like a Bob Dylan impression, but kind of like cheap. And then you hear a song like The Gift and you're like, oh, I see. This is why this is scary. <laughs> it's not about drugs or sex. It's just this like really commitment to a really creepy story. I'm actually glad that you say that because I've never heard the first part, at least I've never heard anybody really articulate. And that was, exactly the feeling that I had the first time I heard the Velvet Underground. And I think, I mean, obviously time and the place are a big part of it, but beyond that, and I've been thinking about this a lot lately, just when you really sit with a piece of music, how different your impressions and your feelings are about it versus the first time around. Yeah. Well, I don't remember where I first heard this, but somebody somewhere I read something where people say, when you listen to somebody who did something for the first time, it's kind of, sometimes it can sound kind of like rough and you can't always re- recapture that initial sort of thrill that the first audiences would have heard. And it's kind of like when you're hacking a path through dense brush with a machete and that path is not going to be slick. You know, you were the first person to do it. So it's a, it's a jagged, clumsy, sloppy path, right? And then everybody else comes along and they just walk down the path. And as they're walking, they tramp down all the stuff that you didn't get to and they might do a little bit of improvements. So when people go back and, you know, they want to hear the inspiration for all those people who just casually walk down the path with the greatest of ease, they see this sloppy, jagged, clumsy thing. And I think for me, the Velvet Underground, because I'd read, you know, as a dutiful reader of Rolling Stone and stuff, they had been held up as simultaneously this like super holy grail of all things rock and roll and also maybe some kind of like apex of art that narrative is complicated by things that are very obvious to a first-time listener who is a big bob dylan fan like wow bob dylan ripoff you know what i mean um and you know later on your brain gets kind of accustomed and big star was the same way i was like i listened to big star for the first time in high school which i was tremendously lucky i started with sister lovers which is such a weird place to start but that was the one everybody always raved about and i was like ready for chaos and madness and then i just heard this like power pop that which to me because i didn't have a um a background in like the raspberries or like, you know, like what power pop was, it almost like reminded me of hair metal or something, you know, I was, which was sort of what was, had just gone out of fashion at the time. And I was like, what, this is all, you know, this is experimental. You know what I mean? Like just sounds like cheesy rock. Big star is a really interesting example. Cause obviously if you had started with first, it is a pop record. And I don't think that takes any sort of like really, real additional contextualizing to figure that out. Well, I think it was just the way it was sequenced on the, on the, um, the Ryko disc or, or Rhino, um, version of it or whatever, where I, I believe it starts with feel, um, feel dreams and wishes like shooting stars. And like, I actually didn't hear the gnarly weird drugginess of that. I just wasn't even used to 
hearing a band do that. You know what I mean? So for me, it was like, it just sounded sort of cheesy, I guess, initially. And then, of course, you get into stuff like Downs, and you're like, am I supposed to, is anybody supposed to enjoy this? You know what I mean? <laughs> is this just a fuck you to like everyone, including the singer, perhaps, you know? Just of all of the sort of like very seminal, important and popular bands, the group that may have been cursed by that the most is the Beach Boys. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's funny because you, and, and, you know, to be, um, for the record, I, I love all these bands so much that I'm talking about, especially the Velvets and um, Big Star. But yeah, with the Beach Boys, it's like you hear about Brian Wilson's tormented genius and his like the apex of his majesty and, and all of this stuff. And then you listen back and it's like, you know, granddad's golden oldies. Yeah. Yeah. Right into my Woody and... <laughs> yeah. Like, I feel good. That's a really funny one. What, what was it like to hear I Feel Good by James Brown? for the first time with like without any like you know ford commercials or fabric softener commercials or you know whatever the hell they put us through in the 80s with those songs you may have been getting at this earlier with the um the machete analogy but i, I think also th- there's a way in which when you are that influential that you're kind of cursed by the bands that come after you because they're the ones who make you feel samey to subsequent audiences yeah yeah and then sometimes of course those bands come along and scoop up all of the you know if you're a big star or something you literally end up washing dishes in new orleans you know like nobody i would argue that that's more often the case than not yeah like nobody we and this is one of the things that really annoys me about rock biopics they've gotten better now but there's this kind of assumption at the heart of rock biopics that talent will out and that, you know, the nascent artist is going to go on this trajectory that's going to like lead to great success. And you don't see in biopics people just getting stymied and like it not being their moment or things just not lining up for them and just the beating your head against a wall again and again and again, which is the, which is the story of, I would say it's the story of the vast majority of musicians, but the real story of the vast majority of musicians is nothing ever happening for you ever. And just wondering if you're crazy that where you're even talented, does anybody care aside from like the, your, your very closest friends who indulge you. But the second biggest story is flailing about, you know what I mean? And, but in, but movies make you think just kind of like rom-coms make, give you these cockamamie ideas about love or whatever. Um, or police shows give you this crazy idea that the police are these virtuous people who always solve crimes and stuff like that. Art biopics give you the sense that if you're talented, like fame and fortune are just sort of like waiting for you to, at the end of the montage. I've actually thought about this a lot because, you know, every every several years, a really popular one will come around and, and people will love the Johnny Cash one springs to mind. And, and, and it suffers for me it suffers from the same thing that a lot of these others suffer from in that I think the biopics that I have enjoyed are ones that only focus on a small portion of the person's life. Yeah, I think that's the best way. You know, you just you try to see the world in a single blade of grass and you you because eventually you get into the doldrums and, you know, and then the comebacks and the and the peaks and the valleys that are sort of a little bit less interesting each time. 
it's it's better to and and I also really like I mean I feel like one of the movies that does um capture what I'm talking about is Inside Lewin Davis and I'm not sure a movie captured that before not technically a biopic obviously but 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 like it's, it is kind of a telling of Dave Van Ronk's life yeah but what I mean is just this I guess when I say biopic what I mean is like stories of, of musicians because it's like you know there's some concept that there's like a meritocracy and i'm not saying like really talented people don't get successful i mean obviously they do all the time and really untalented people get successful and really talented people don't get successful and you know just like life you know there's a sort of a randomness to it in in some way but yeah i mean i think that um that thing about the incredible bitterness that Alex Chilton must have felt, you know, watching. And then my sense is that by the time people really were like, you were so great. You were so great. I mean, the key word in that is were, it's like, Oh, cool. I'm so glad you're coming around now to something I did 20 years ago. But like, what good does that fucking do me? <laughs> you know what I mean, I would say in at least 99 out of a hundred cases that that's just, that's kind of how music works, or at least that's how like pop culture works. And that's how, you know, we, we tend to interact with music. I could probably like, I saw, I saw uh, Nick Lowe in concert a, a few weeks ago and I, I would put him on a like very small pedestal of somebody who's actually like aids gracefully and continued to put out really different, but incredible stuff. I think he's one of the most gracefully aging artists that I can think of. I mean, he's the he is the paragon of aging gracefully in rock and roll. I think you know, and and I bring that up like specifically because I mean, obviously there there is sort of an expectation that you're not going to stay on top forever, regardless. But even beyond that, I, I I don't know. I mean, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe this is just the way that I consume and, and think about music, but. Even like a lot of really great artists, how many of them are making music that you would, you know, sit down and actively engage with several decades into their career? Well, that's the funny thing. And I wonder, I'd like to ask you this because there are all these artists where I'm like, like Joni Mitchell, for example. I'm like, Joni Mitchell is one of my idols and one of my favorite. She's kind of this person that I'm always shooting for on some level or trying to build on or trying to whatever. It is, and I'll, I will talk about how big of a fan I am of hers. And then I'll kind of catch myself and realize that there's like, there's like six Joni Mitchell records I've never even listened to. You know what I mean? I don't know if there's any band uh, or musician other than like Nick Drake or the Velvet Underground or Big Star who only put out like people who, who died at 28. Yeah. That I've like even listened to their whole catalog. You know, I, I maybe that's the way I am. I, I mean, do you have musicians that you feel like you've heard every note they ever released? I mean, that didn't do more than four albums? That did more than four albums. Yeah, that's what I meant. Sorry. This is a weird thing on my part, but there are some bands that I will always listen to their new album at least once. A very funny one springs to mind because it's somebody who this is a, a pretty common sentiment, I think, of, especially around a certain certain age group and a certain level of whether you want, want to call it refined sensibilities or snobbiness, but I think the first two Weezer albums are terrific. And I think that I have listened to every Weezer album since then yeah. once. 
that's almost become like their their legacy it's like it's the band where they put out a record and you're like oh maybe it's this one (laughs) this this might be the one yeah (laughs) yeah oh god imagine how they feel uh i think fine i've talked to rivers i had rivers on the show i mean i think one i think the rest of the bands especially the ones who've been with them since the beginning are like they're just they're they're good to kind of collect their money. It's it's Rivers' thing, and I think I honestly think that Rivers is one thousand percent happy with what what he's doing now, and you know, God bless him for it. That's amazing. Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting thing, though. How like I don't mean to it sounded mean when I said that about Weezer, but it's like that's the other thing is that these narratives coalesce around bands, you know? So like with Weezer, it's like, they're never going to recapture those first two albums and every new release is like Charlie Brown and the football or whatever it is. And then, you know, there's the history of rock and roll, such as it is, is littered with so many albums that like, you know, came out and everybody was like, boo. And then now we look back and we're like Berlin or, or there's that famous Rolling Stone review of Neil Young's, uh, after the gold rush that's just like savage and basically acts like basically pronounces his career to be done. You know what I mean? And you just sort of look back on these things and you're like, you know, it's, it's like really satisfying to see them sort of get their due or whatever. But we always kind of take it from this smug viewpoint of like, aha, now we know, you know, that Berlin is a great record, but like they were so stupid back then, but of course we're doing the same thing right now. And you see it, it's not just confined to music. I mean, culturally, we look back on how, of course, it's very in vogue right now to like look reappraise the 90s culturally and how like much we dumped on certain women or allowed certain men to sort of like roam free abusing people and just, you know, all of this stuff. We we always think that we've somehow arrived at the end point where we're like, ah, oh, now we're so much more enlightened. I was listening to this. The narrative in the 90s was... Uh, literally the end of history like that was a phrase that was being thrown yeah. around yeah and it's it, there's there's it's so funny how narcissistic people are like the human race as a whole is and you look at how you know in silicon valley like there's this there's this kind of persistent idea that the brain is like a computer and that's because like the computer is the most exciting sexy thing that we have now you know you look back in the in the old days and it's like the body is like a steam locomotive, you know what I mean? Or like hydraulics or, you know, all of these different, um, all of the, a printing press, all of these different, whatever was like the new sexy thing that people just made up suddenly became the key to like how the, you know, how God made the universe. You know what I mean? It's just, it's sort of a feature, I guess, of us. I would even like extend that to say, I mean, this isn't relevatory by any stress of the imagination, but it is something that for reasons that will become clear as I say it, that I have been thinking about a lot lately is that every generation thinks they're the last. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and that's a huge problem. There are, you know, severe consequences to that, you know, especially, you know, if we're talking about things like climate change, but even beyond that, you know, obviously like in the past, it would have been book of revelations and you know, all these things every, you know, hundred years or so something comes along that leads people to believe that it would have been like you know, nuclear war in the, in the eighties. I see what you're saying. Yeah. I think that that is also a very narcissistic viewpoint. Yeah. Like on the one hand, it's like, we're the best. And on the other hand, it's like, oh my God, we're fucked. You know? <laughs> 
we're both the pinnacle and the end of this thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I just for what some reason or another kind of devoured this big history of like the British Isles. You know, I'm get I, I don't know. I'm getting more and more into history, and it's funny to think about like you know when they were first making the megaliths, this big stone megaliths or something like that, like way, way, way back, like pre-Roman days or whatever. It was a sort of like, you, you, you picture they're like, they're in the past and somehow maybe they know they're in the past, but they were probably like, oh man, 20 years ago, they didn't even have a single megalith here. You know what I mean? That was the cutting edge. And, and, and conversely, you look, I'm also fascinated with all these stories of like ancient cities. It's it, no matter how many times I try to wrap my head around it, it's just such a like mind fuck to think about how there were like whole massive cities that had to deal with plumbing and, you know, like street cleaning and things like that. You just start to get this view of human history as like the same thing is happening over and over and over again. And we, we keep like feeling like progress is going on, but maybe it's just sort of like the same you know, the same cycle just rebooting itself over and over again. It is a weird thing related to that, that I've, I've been feeling in particular, you know, the past, I mean, the pandemic played a role in this, but even beyond that, the past, you know, six, seven years. And I recognize that this is coming from kind of, well, this is definitely coming from a place of privilege and that a lot of this has been going on. And because of like, I guess who I am and, and my station in life, I haven't noticed it. But I, I do feel like for the first time in my life, at least, there's also some very serious regression happening at the same time. Yeah. Well, I mean, that even that, though, it, you see happening again and again and again. It's just it's this constant like push and pull, which isn't to say there isn't regression. I mean, there is. And it's t- completely and totally terrifying. And when you talk about every generation feels like it's the last, I guess I would argue that um, the threat we face from climate change is really novel. But then again, the threat that they faced from like, you know, nuclear brinksmanship in the 60s was also really novel. And it's kind of like when something really, really bad happens and you just didn't see it coming, you're like, how could this happen? And it's like, well, maybe disaster and really bad things happening are just as normal (laughs) as stability. You know, we we have this bias where we kind of think that everything is cool and stable and then like chaos happens. But that's the other thing that I, you know, you see when you're like devouring an audiobook about the history of the British Isles is you're like, God, people were at each other's throats and killing each other way more often than they were relaxed and calm. And yeah, maybe we're headed into a new kind of dark ages to some degree. Um, I mean, I don't know. I don't know. It's like, the stuff with climate change, like that's gonna, that's gonna stick around. Like that, the damage we're doing now will will probably outlive the human race. And that's not, that's not a doomism. That's just saying like it may take like ten million years to to change. You know, <laughs> like what are people going to look like in ten million years? I mean, probably not the same as we do now if we're gonna if we're even gonna be on the scene. But one thing that was, I think, both eye opening and heartening. I'm always hesitant to talk about positive outcomes during the pandemic, but they, you know, they do exist. And one of them was this like this realization that obviously we didn't go away, but if, you know, humans are stuck inside for six months, nature comes back. Yeah. Oh yeah. It's a realization like how, you know, how resilient it can be, but also just like how, how, how much of an immediate effect we have on our surroundings. 
I'm also really encouraged by how quickly positive change can happen. You know, like you think nothing good will something that feels like generationally impossible just will happen in a very, very short period of time. And similarly, you know, I think that individual people are capable of like really sublime acts of selflessness and generosity, like including a lot of the people that we think we hate, you know, like a lot of the most MAGA Trumpy dickheads out there are capable of like really sublime generosity and grace and kindness if you catch them at the right moment. You know what I mean? And so I love that like we have, there is this, everything obviously is passing and flickering and coming and going, but like, so really terrible things can happen. Really amazing progress can happen really fast. And people can really, the same people who do really horrible stuff can do really great stuff. I mean, I think that's something really important to to keep in mind. And I try really, really hard to remember that um, most people are fundamentally decent. I mean, that's a that's something I I feel really deeply in my core. And I feel like I feel like it, you know it's kind of borne up when you look at studies and stuff like that too. I mean, that to me is um, even even though yeah, people get really really lost and turned around and all of that. I I also think that like most people are are pretty good. I certainly think that's right on an interpersonal level. I think that also, you know, when people, we, we see this a lot, particularly with Republicans when, you know, like with LGBTQ rights, for example, like suddenly when they have somebody in their family who it impacts, like suddenly yeah. they actually start, yeah. you know, they start, they start voting that way. And I do think that this sort of, this loops into maybe not necessarily the new record, but, but I think some of the thought processes that you discuss going into it Something that I've been trying to get better at and be mindful of is the kind of empathy that it takes to recognize what that person may have been through on a certain day, you know, why that person like behind you in the grocery store, you know, was, was kind of being an asshole should try to take that into account. And, and I, and the sense that I get from your talking about this new record is that it really is in some ways an effort to just be less self-centered. Yeah. I think that I was trying really hard to there's this huge conflict for me between like it, it really goes to the root of like why I make music or art or why I write or whatever and there's kind of these two different reasons for it and one of them is that I I guess maybe was called to do it, you know, like, and I'm a big believer in like the idea that destiny and chance are sort of two words for the same thing. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like people say, well, that was meant to be. And it's like, well, it's what happened and nothing else happened. So you might as well say it was meant to be. Um, so on some very deep level, art and music and all of this stuff is like, it's like the most important thing to me. And it's like deep down in my soul and my, the very center of my being, it's like the most sacred thing to me. Right. The other thread of it is as a kid growing up who, a kid who was really, really sickly and like looked funny. And there was obviously something wrong with me in this kind of 
really pretty provincial small town in the rural New Hampshire in the 1980s. I just got kind of like bullied relentlessly. And I, the only thing that anybody ever recognized about me that was any good from where I was sitting was my ability to, to do this stuff. So I think that on some level, and I don't think I'm unique in all this, the this deep, deep sacred connection with art that I have and this sort of like need for approval and to be cool and to be like allowed to sit at the cool kids table, um, which of course gets like, in you know, which was my fuel a lot of the time in, in early years. And which also is a torture chamber <laughs> that you devise for yourself, especially when you have like, you know, literal, like a, like a, uh, not to rag on them. And it's a cliche thing, but just using it as, as an example, like an outlet like Pitchfork, which is like literally giving a hundred point scale grade to you, which is pretty much more a reflection of how cool you are than it is about anything that has to do with like the soul qualities of your record. But also when you just look at the larger thing of like, there's this really, really beautiful, eternal thing that's like making music. And then there's this sort of like ramshackle little economic structure that we've devised as of 2022 to sell music, you know, and it doesn't really have, it's not like it, it emerged organically. It's just this, like this other overlay and sort of you're supposed to hold these two things simultaneously. Like you're supposed to like express yourself and then sell that expression. And that has been a really deep conflict, I think for me. And I think it's true for a lot of people. It's not, not just me, but when you look at, I found that, you know, praise just, just inflated my ego and, um, criticism was like way more hurtful, like deeply personally devastating. And both of those things were really, really difficult. And when you look at like the whole structure of rock stardom, you know, going from like, just people playing on their porch for fun to like Bob Dylan and his wayfarers, like holding a light bulb and refusing to answer questions and making it all about him, you know, to Beyonce doing sort of queen imagery all the time and stuff like that. And Kanye, you know, like you look at like the, the way that sort of the more narcissistic you are, that, that sort of tends to get rewarded. And it's just becomes kind of like this crazy torture chamber. And I think that, for me, a lot of this stuff on this album has to do with, um, I just got my brain, maybe I was lucky enough, often enough to get my brain to a place where I just didn't care. <laughs> I don't know why that was, but it was like something I had been sort of praying for, I think maybe my whole life. And the title is a sort of a representation of that. It's a sort of a, an attempt to cut against the chest puffing quality that you kind of are supposed to engage in these days when you're trying to build your brand and promote yourself and everything and acting like everything is, you know, the best of the best. There was a, somebody who said to me in the music business side of things that they wanted to hear like bulletproof singles at one point. Right. And I was thinking how much that metaphor is like exactly wrong in terms of talking about like big star or, Velvet Underground. We were just, we started this conversation talking about like the herky jerky, broken, kind of like porous 
slightly like you can chuckle about it quality of that music. And that's what I love. It's for want of a better term, it's like the humanity. Humanity is not bulletproof, quite the opposite. You know what I mean? Humanity is very vulnerable to bullets. And I wanted to so I started saying as a joke, like, oh, I, I think I'm just gonna call this record nothing special. And then, you know, when I was working with Christian Lee Hudson and I wrote that song and I put that those words in there in the chorus and I, I wrote nothing special, that was kind of when like that was when the deal was sealed. Is achieving a certain level of success and, and the success that you have achieved, certainly critically and, and, and commercially as well, is that is that liberating when it comes to stepping out of that? Or is it just feeding the machine ultimately? <sighs> well, first of all, I mean, I'm lucky as hell that I haven't got to the point of having the luxury of ha- trying to decide my attitude about this. So, I mean, I think maybe that's like a flaw with everything thing I'm saying in my argument on some level, because there's some people out here who are like, I mean, most people probably, and, and most people listening to this who harbor any kind of musical thing are probably thinking, you know, and would rightly so, like, you're fucking lucky to get to sculpt some attitude about your success, you know, like, and they're right. I think that yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, for some people, um, when you get success, you just want more and more and more and more. You know, whenever I would read, um, whenever I would read reviews back in the day, and if they were negative, it was like devastating for like three weeks. You know, if they were positive, it was like I would devour the review in like, you know, <laughs> two minutes and then like find the next one. You know, it was like, pouring a bag of Doritos into your mouth, you know, and you, and I, you start to become aware that like, you're never going to be satisfied. You know, I could, I think of that scene in, um, spirited away where the river spirit shows up, but it's sort of this polluted hungry ghost monster. And it starts devouring everything in the bathhouse and terrorizing everybody that I have that in me. And I think everybody does, you know, where you're just like more, 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 they call that sometimes the hedonic treadmill, you know, like pleasure. No amount of pleasure is enough. No amount of affirmation is enough. But I think that the more pernicious aspect of it is that you start to consume a tremendous amount of other people talking about what your work is. <laughs> and, you know, my experience of my uh, stuff is my experience of making it. It's very different than the experience of other people. You know, I remember one time reading this person saying, um, well, Ockerville River, Will has really drifted away from the Ockerville River sound. And I just thought, I, I, I very sincerely had this thought where I was, I wanted to write them and be like, what's the Ockerville River sound? Like, could you explain to me <laughs> what you mean? Like, I don't even know what you mean. You know, um, it's, I kind of want to know so I could like oblique strategies it and try to do it, you know what I mean? Try to do it or not do it. Yeah. And, and, you know, obviously like narratives are, it's fascinating because we're storytelling creatures and stories can save and change the world and organize the world. And that's like a beautiful thing that we have, but also stories are incredibly damaging. 
And, you know, talking about like the stories that I'm saying in movies that like, if you're six, if you're talented, you'll be successful. There's the right person out for you. And it's, if it doesn't feel like a rom-com, then it's not right. You know, the police always are virtuous and they always solve crimes. These are stories, right? And you start to tell yourself stories about who you are. And I'm this and I'm not this. And I'm a, I'm a fundamentally good person. I'm a, I'm a failure. You know, nothing I do is going to work. Whatever it is, right? And then you start to read other people's, and, and or artistically you do it. This is what I do. This is what I'm good at. This is who I am. And then other people say, Will Chef writes like a novelist. Will Chef is hyper literary. Will Chef is all this stuff. And then I'm like, yeah, yeah, that, what that guy said, what that guy said. And then suddenly you're in this bizarre world where you have a million different sort of stories, good and bad, that you're telling yourself. And you kind of like are pretty far divorced from just the, just being, you know what I mean? And, and I, the music that really like speaks to me on this really, really deep level. I mean, I like music that's narcissistic and loud and look at me. That stuff is really exhilarating, like a shot in the arm, you know what I mean? But the music, especially at this point in my life, that really speaks to me the most is like kind of conversant with this great numinous mystery, you know, and it's very humble in that way. And I feel like, at this point in my life, I'm 46 years old. I don't have a lot of money to show for it. I don't have any like kids. I've never owned any property. I, you know, driving like a beat up old used car. Like I don't really have very much to show for myself. And yet I keep doing this. So there must be a reason why I keep doing it. And it's because it's my calling. And if it's my calling, I should be trying to make the most beautiful music that I can, you know, and beautiful on the deepest level. That's tough too, because then you get into this should, you get into this sort of like, not to rag on Mr. Rogers, but you get on this Mr. Rogers-y, like I should be a vitamin B or something like that. That's not what it is, but you definitely should be trying to just kind of try to connect with this wellspring of like what it is that what is this dialogue that you've been always trying to have with like the great mystery, you know, and that dialogue doesn't necessarily run through like puffing up your chest and talking about how amazing you are, at least certainly not where I'm at right now. You have a lot of really good and, and I think insightful quotes in, in the press material that, that's gone out around this, which I, I certainly can't say for everyone. I think it's partially because and I respect this. It's kind of like pulling teeth for a lot of people to get them to talk about their own music. But something that you said was, I guess, kind of thinking about what others' impressions and expectations are of Ocarina River. And you said maybe aesthetically or musically, it's it's hard to define. But beyond just the sound, you know what what are people's impressions and expectations about you as far insofar as you're able to kind of articulate them musically i i get confused sometimes i think people i mean people like the lyrics i know that much i think some people want like sort of signifiers of mid 2000s indie rock like horns and they want some kind of americana trappings and they want me to be screaming and angry and you know, maybe there's some like lost love stuff in there, or or maybe some people want like the electric guitar poppy lost coastlines stuff or something like that. I, it's just I don't know. That I guess that's my guess. You know what I mean? Um 
personally, I don't know. I guess the thing that, that, um, that I worry about and also like know is true and also doesn't really bother me the most is, is like, I'm sure I'm, I mean, I, it's gotta be true that I come across as like super pretentious. It's like, uh, I'm super, super serious. Uh, use a lot of like big words. Um, and I guess I, I guess I, uh, I try to project that like, I'm a lot of the time I'm like, I'm having fun and like, I'm trying to be funny. You know what I mean? (laughs) Um, and it's really just the, it's really just the, um, the effects of like a boy who was raised by school teachers, you know what I mean? And didn't have a lot of, um, friends and like read a lot of books growing up. That's all, that's all it is. It's a very authentic, um, representation really of who I am, but even me sometimes like I look back on something I did and some, especially some interview or some quote I said and something I said when I was feeling grandiose or whatever. And I go, God, this guy, there's some people I know who like really, uh, think I'm insufferable and I sympathize (laughs) in terms of let's talk specifically the last two and a half, I guess, almost three years at this point, there's been obviously certainly in your profession um to some extent mine uh unfortunately you know again if you're working at an amazon warehouse or or a supermarket or certainly a hospital you don't have this luxury but for a lot of us the pandemic has afforded not even afforded has has forced us into this state of of silence you know hopefully a little bit of reflection and the ability to confront some things about our past what have you realized about yourself in that time, if the pandemic, I, I feel like the pandemic, there was a lot of. I would read a lot of people talking about how the pandemic was, um, going to create mental health crises, um, widespread mental health crises. And I remember also, and I would sometimes espouse this myself, people saying, you know, the pandemic was forcing you to go inward and actually like gain some self knowledge, and. From where I'm sitting, it looks like both things happened to everybody a little bit simultaneously. And I think a lot of like the, the real like dark, disturbing unrest that you see happening in America was definitely like the pandemic was definitely fuel to that fire. But I also feel like there's a lot of enlightenment happening at the same time. And I feel like the pandemic was like a sun and water to that kind of growth too, you know? And for me, it's just the same. I mean, I can't even fully articulate this, but I I definitely am aware that like some of my, maybe my mental health was impacted negatively by the pandemic and in in some ways that I'm having a hard time fully unraveling. And I also feel like I grew a lot. I matured a lot too, I think during that time. Um, So, you know, I think that, um, Nothing special. And and again, this is kind of a weird thing to try to talk about or or promote, I guess, so to speak. Of course, nothing special was very informed by the pandemic. But it's kind of weird to like talk about that because it's like, it's not like I was the only one who was going through that. And, you know, there's a lot of pandemic art coming out now that people were working on in 2020. And some of it you look at and you're like, ah, I don't want to relive this shit. You know what I mean? Like, like I want to, you know, like I, I don't want to think about it. 
Yeah, no, I was thinking about that a lot in the early days, but the other side of that, and you know, and and I think I, I haven't had much time in the record. I think you've tapped into this, and I think that good art that is coming out of it recognizes that because it is something that everybody's gone through, that it is a universal experience, and therefore there is value in attempting to, you know, contextualize it or get to some of these thoughts and feelings that are really difficult to verbalize. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think that the most helpful thing maybe with the writing of the album that I think helped it the most is that the pandemic just, it was really instructive to watch how quickly everything could crumble, how like completely fragile and improvised so many things that seemed very like fundamentally stable about American society and the supply chain and things like that were. And that's a really helpful thing to have your attention drawn to because it's just, as we said earlier, it's like very true of life, right? Like I could walk out the door and get hit by a car. I could have a disease right now that I don't know I have, and I could have six months to live. You know what I mean? But like when I don't know that I have that knowledge, I just walk around being like waiting for the show that I like to go on TV tomorrow, <laughs> like being annoyed that the restaurant I want to order food from is closed tonight. You know, all of this crap that you're just taking for granted and getting all caught up with this mundane shit. And I think the pandemic kind of forced our eyes open to look at how fragile it is and how easily it all can fall apart. And I think that that d does inform in a lot of ways the songs on Nothing Special. You know, um, my own life changing, my own sort of psychological growth and, and setbacks and growth and setbacks, um, this sort of fragility of the system, fragility of the overall world, all of these things, you know, what you're trying to do, I guess this isn't true of, of all art because some art is really just about trying to like empower you to have a good time on a Saturday night and that stuff's cool too. But, you know, what, what I was trying really hard to do with this was like give people something soul nourishing you know that's such a super inadequate term but like something with a lot of depth to it especially that you could come back to and trying to not be grandiose so that i wasn't like giving some kind of a sermon or a ted talk you know what i mean but i was just sort of like living in it and trying to be trying to sort of absorb and reflect beauty on, in some kind of very simple but deep way, you know? Um, and because I had a lot of time to work on it, I felt like I could get rid of all of the, get rid of like a lot of the more vain parts of it slowly over time and try to boil it down to the parts that felt like they were genuinely solid. The fragility thing is, is interesting. In that, uh, you know, again, th this is, it's not, 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 not even generational. It, obviously, a pandemic of this level is kind of a once in 100 years occurrence. M maybe less than that in the future, but, but yeah. <laughs> thus far, it's been about once in 100 years. The way you describe that sort of that realization about, I guess, kind of the universally fragile nature of so much of life is something that, we do experience, you know, semi often in our lives, but it generally it comes 
when somebody we know is has died and especially if it's a sudden death and you you kind of had that double barrel impact of of both you know the pandemic happening and losing somebody you were close to at the beginning of all of this yeah yeah well that was a very that's a very that was a very complicated thing too um and i don't really want to get into the nuts and bolts of that but i would say that maybe my writing about particularly about like that way that Travis, um, my old drummer, Travis Nelson, the way that his sort of, that he appears in that, in these songs. And it was like, he was sort of walked into them every now and then and kind of, kind of sat down and walked out again after a while. I don't think it's so much about loss as it is about remembering as as so much as it is about like sort of treasuring what people were to you and trying to kind of hang their, name up high you know again it's like here i am again talking about experiences that a lot of people could relate to as if they're like unique to me i think one of the things that happens too you know when you have a certain amount of years on you or hopefully it happens when you have a certain amount of years on you is you start realizing how important the people that have been there all along are or the people who remember back in the day you know or the people who really you didn't realize at the time how meaningful they were to you and how much they were giving you. I think that that's a big part of what I'm talking about and what maybe Travis is communicating when he appears here and there in some of these songs is like the love that we shared and the connection that we had and the dreams that we shared and the, the way that they were destructive and the way that they were really beautiful. How special it is to have a, a friend like that, you know? How beautiful it is to try so hard to do something good, you know what I mean? To make something really cool, entertain people, to put on a show. So, I mean, I think that this the the songs are less maybe about like the shock and pain of like losing someone as they are about kind of honoring all of that maybe i mean obviously you know a lot of musicians i know a few musicians too but like how many people outside of that do you know who have been doing the same thing with their lives since they were in high school you know not not a lot of people can say that that's something that's fairly unique to being a professional musician obviously it's it's great in that it's the thing that you feel like you were put on this earth to do. And and obviously you, you do derive enjoyment from it, but the thing, one of the things I suspect from the outside that makes it hard is that it, when you're doing for something, something for so long, and when you don't really have any meaningful breaks in the interim, that it, it becomes really easy to take all of that for granted. Oh Yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. Um, I remember reading Chronicles, the Bob Dylan book. That's what I, that was my biggest takeaway from that book. It's like this is this is a dude who has no idea how the world works outside of like the specific thing that he does. Even when he's talking about, you know, like I remember, he, and I know I know that he's being kind of funny, but I remember he was talking about how like he considered 
retiring from music and he was like talking about like some of the things he might go into like I, maybe i would work at a wooden leg factory <laughs> but like all of the jobs that he described were like jobs that maybe don't exist or like completely implausible <laughs> and there's even parts of that book where he talks about um music music theory stuff that's like he t- like there's this whole part where he's just talking about three over four for like you're talking about the, the time signature yeah <laughs> and as if it's like he's the first person that ever discovered like a, a three over four like polyrhythm which is like pretty well-known thing that you hear all the time in music you know and he's he's talking like it's like there's that there's that thing where it's like this is a dude who like knows what it's like to be bob dylan and he kind of doesn't know about a lot of other stuff you know what i mean <laughs> And yeah, I mean, of course, like sometimes I'm, I just wonder if I'm just this crazy, like man child person who has like gotten really experienced at like this super rarefied thing, but like doesn't understand some really basic shit that a lot of other people have to deal with constantly. Yeah, it's a weird thing. And maybe like to some degree, I, I also have seen that in a lot of people that I know. You know, like I, I, I make an example of myself and I talk about how, you know, at certain times in my life, I was really self-absorbed because I was all caught up in my career. That's all very true. But, you know, I'm, I also, I don't always say this because it can sound really weird, but it's like, I've also really seen pretty extreme examples of that in people that I know who are musicians, some of whom are more famous than me, some of whom are not, you know. And you really, you see a lot of people who are like, have really super stunted personalities. And the most extreme version of that is people who decide that there should be a different set of rules for them because they're this, in this exalted category of like genius artist or whatever. And some of those people end up getting arrested and going to jail. I guess I have always, and you don't have to read too many like rock bios to see that a lot of your heroes were dickheads. And it's always been really like important to me. And maybe this is, maybe I put this on my parents and my family, but ultimately at the end of the day, I mean, I'd rather be forgotten and feel like I had my soul intact than be remembered for all time and be like some kind of twisted creep. I'm not saying that that's a real choice that you have to make, but I, I do think that. And a lot of the people that I know who, who are f- more successful than me and who are like kind of really difficult prima donna type people, it wasn't like they were all horrible to begin with. It was like managers were, would swoop in and like take care of something before they had to start worrying about it. And before you know it, they're like, they're just taking private planes because they didn't know that that there was another way to do it. (laughs) I mean, there's this weird kind of slippery slope that you start sliding down. And I guess my concern, like when I met Bruce Springsteen, he was, he was like the nicest dude. And I started thinking like, it really, it really impressed me. And then I, I couldn't tell if he was like genuinely just a nice guy or like 
he had put a lot of thought into like my whole, I'm like the, this man of the people. So like, it's part of my job to be nice. When you care that much and put that much work into it, if it's a performance, does it really matter? Because it's a very, it's a performance that comes from a very thoughtful place. But also like at a certain point, that just is you if you've been playing that part for long enough. Yeah. But I guess what I'm, what I'm getting at is like, and this is kind of a naively idealistic thing, but like if you're Bruce Springsteen and you're selling this like really beautiful humanistic idea, it's really fucked up and corrosive to your work. If you're actually this creep, you know, if you're, if you're actually like the opposite of everything you're espousing and similarly, but conversely, like Van Morrison, who so much of his work is like very beautifully spiritual, spiritually in touch. People, everybody now sees it, but like if you read his bios, you see it was there all along. The dude has always been a cantankerous pain in the ass with not a lot of friends because he just alienates people because he's a selfish jerk. It's a bummer. It, it's I feel like it undermines his work. You know, like if this is a calling and if this is what you're supposed to be doing, then what the hell are you doing? Like behaving in a way that's completely counter to what you're trying to put out there artistically. Oh, and I feel like getting too wrapped up in like too insulated in your own like little world of like being a star or whatever is like those things don't don't help. I also think that we do ourselves a disservice by 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 romanticizing depression and bad behavior. Yes. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And that was the other thing, you know, for me, and I, I think I said this already um, in a different interview, but like, I just remember, and I have like direct experience of this. I just remember like, we, it was not like we ever set out to trash hotel rooms, but some of the hotel rooms we, when we got through with them looked fucking terrible. And we felt like it was cool, you know, because we were, we were like fanboys of all the rock bios. And then you, you know, it was a real growing moment for me watching the maids go into the rooms <laughs> and being like, oh, fuck, this is not so cool. This is pretty, this is childish shit and completely like fucking with this person's day. Especially because it's, it's also like a really obvious thing that you should inherently realize. Yeah, I know. I know. But when you think about how much we glorify, you know, self-destruction and Travis's favorite band was The Replacements. And those are like, that's like, the ultimate version of that. I think the thing that's funny about the replacements is that they were trashing themselves as hard as they were trashing their hotel rooms or whatever. You know, it's the ultimate self-sabotaging, self-defeating band. But self-sabotage is not cool and funny and healthy and fun to watch your friends do and all of that stuff. And so, you know, those myths, I think that's the other thing is you get to where I'm at, where you're 46, 46 years old and you're like, you know, is the is the is the path to enlightenment still derangement of the senses? <laughs> I mean, like, do I still want to be living this like adolescent fant self destructive other things destructive fantasy? Like, it's pretty sad to be doing that. So, what what is the version of who I am now that like I feel like is still very creatively? valid and and nick lowe is a good example like you start looking to like who are the people who really have aged gracefully who are the people who are really like stay in touch with this really beautiful vital thing and they're not just like 
going through the motions. I remember this is maybe a waste of time, but I remember seeing like the New York Dolls opening for the Stooges in, I want to say 2006 or something like that. This was when like every garage band was reuniting. Yeah. And, and this New York Dolls went on stage and it was basically just David Johansson. And he had a bunch of like young LA sesh guys and they were just like dressed outrageously because if you felt like they thought they were supposed to be and it was lame. And then the Stooges got on stage and they were like, old and rickety and the piano player whose name I can't remember, but they played Funhouse in its entirety and they had the original sax piano and maraca guy. He came on there looking like Jerry Seinfeld's dad in the sitcom, you know, black tank top, all of this like sort of arm loose, fatty skin hanging down off his arms, shaking those maracas, big old gut. And I was just like, that is rock and roll. Like an unselfconscious old guy just like going for it. You know what I mean, <laughs> acting his age, like, just like being not pretending to be younger than he is just being human. Yeah. I, I was thinking about that because, uh, Nicola was opening for, um, Elvis Costello and most of his backing band is, is from the attractions. Mike Watt is the, uh, is the young buck in your band, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. but I love it, man. I mean, I just feel like it's, I just feel like it, it all goes down to this this thing about honesty and it's a, it's a really precarious road to walk because if you start getting too self-regarding about how honest and pure and shit you are then like the music starts to feel like homework or like um going to church in a bad way you know what i mean like for me <laughs> going to church my experience of going to church as a kid which was like the most boring shit ever so you know you you have to you still have to have your, your whatever fuck it means to you, you know, but at the same time, I feel like there's, you have to be touching this like wellspring of why you started doing it in the first place. Mm-hmm. 